I gotta say, after that uh, that much praise, you get so filled with the Lord, and you get up here, you just feel like sitting here for a while. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Good morning, beloved in the Lord. We have the Meekins came all the way up here from Virginia just to hear me. <laughs> Maybe while you're here, there's some other things you can do. Who knows? Yeah. We have a lovely family in the back there. Two of them left, Ray and uh, what's it, Daisy May. But remaining are Sissy and Bubba. Let's make them feel welcome. Now, Bubba, there is a, there's a man here who's even larger than you are. He's a big guy. Don Cruz sitting over there. He, he left, but when you see him, he loves the Lord, and, and he would love to meet you. It's good to have you guys here. So my name is Bill Smith, and I'm one of the members of the teaching team. And uh, today we're going to continue our series of the marks of maturity in Christ. We're looking at signs and indicators, symptoms, outward expression of inward change. Julie began this series by encouraging us to look for those marks of maturity. Last week, Scott talked about the concept of yieldedness, becoming less willful and more willing. Not my will but thine be done. And like Scott, I often have a pretty good plan on how to handle things, and I'm still learning to be open to his way of doing things. In essence, this is sort of a control issue, isn't it? It's an issue of conformance. I'm not so much a control freak, but more like a control enthusiast. <clears throat> and Scott says he likes it when preachers get up front and not only tell us what we should do, but how to do it. Amen? I like that too. I'm going to endeavor to do that today. And like Scott, I haven't figured out how to be completely yielded, but I figured it out in a few small places. So far, I think it has something to do with acknowledging I'm not in control. That control is an illusion. What struck me profound in thinking about Scott's message and thinking about my message is it occurred to me this week that God has already yielded to us first. That was kind of like, <laughs> blew my mind to think about that. He conformed to us by becoming human. He submitted to our torture and our punishment. He set an example. We could substitute yielded for the word love in the verse, not that we first yielded to God, but that he first yielded to us. So as I thought about this concept of abiding, I've done so in the light of Scott's sermon about yieldedness. So let us pray. Father, I am in need of you. I am in need of the Son. I am in need of the Holy Spirit. You have me in a place of dependence on you. I am just a branch who is rooted in the vine. Fill me with your living water. Cleanse me with your word. Bless me through the fellowship of these other believers. Lift me up to the sunlight. Bear fruit through me. I am drawing upon you as the source of my life, my joy, my ability to persevere, my desire to be kind, my potential to be good, my knowledge to be faithful, my reminder to be humble. You are my reason to be gentle and my strength to have self-control. You are my love to love. I choose to stay with you and in you. I choose to allow you to live in and through me. And I yield to you now. In Jesus' name we pray for his sake. So, as we look at this interrelationship of yieldedness and abiding, we're going to use as our reference today... John chapter 15. 
where Jesus is teaching and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, just as the Father has loved me. I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Amen. This passage of Scripture is really the essence of, of the gospel. It's the center of the whole thing. When the world speaks about Christianity, it rarely speaks about this mystery because it doesn't understand it. In fact, most of us as Christians don't really understand this either sometimes, right? Sometimes Christianity is seen as a set of rules. But the center of the gospel, it's a relationship. And it's a lopsided relationship. One of the people in this relationship remains deeply, passionately, irrevocably, and unconditionally in love with the other. So the context of this passage is at the very least interesting, but more importantly, it's significant where Jesus was in his life and his ministry when he spoke these words. At this point of his life, he has really irritated the Pharisees at this point. During previous visits to Jerusalem is when he began to start to irritate them. Not that that was intent, but he would naturally do that. This is no longer the case now in John 15. So if we go back into John 11, the Pharisees are laying in wait in Jerusalem for Jesus because the Passover is near. And it would be unlike Jesus not to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. He came for all of the festivals. In fact, they're openly, openly wondering if their threats to seize him might have scared him and perhaps he wouldn't show up. It's like they're wondering if they had put the fear of God into God. <laughs> Not only does Jesus enter Jerusalem, if we combine all four Gospels with respect to the number of times, this would be perhaps his seventh and final time to enter into Jerusalem. So in John 12, we see this triumphal entry, and he begins to teach, and he starts talking about his death, which he'd never done before. And he talks about his death as a seed falling to earth so that it can bear much fruit. Death bears fruit. And in John 13, he goes to the upper room where he has his, what will turn out to be his last supper, at least the one he'll have here on earth. You know, there's another supper coming up, and there's going to be more than 12 people at the table. Amen? And we're all going to be there. 
He also washes the disciples' feet, and then he excuses Judas to start the next chain of events. And once Judas leaves, Jesus starts talking in strange ways. He begins talking about the Son being glorified in the Father, and the Father being glorified in the Son, and he gives a commandment to love one another. And he says he's going away, and they're getting confused. So the setting and the context here is this is the last night on earth for Jesus. It's the last night before the biggest, greatest, and most fantastic day in the history of the universe. God is preparing to die. This is his last chance to talk with his children directly. It's sort of a deathbed confession, if you will. The executioner has asked God if he has any last words, and God says, yes, and here's what I want you to do. In fact, I'm commanding you to do, so get ready, sharpen your pencils, and take notes. I want you to love one another. Are there any questions? He said, I don't have any hats or T-shirts for you to wear to let other people know that you're my disciples. So you'll have to love one another. And that's how they will know you're my disciples, when you love one another. And this is how they will also become attracted to me, because you love one another. The disciples sort of miss this point. They want to go back to this idea he's going somewhere, and apparently they know the way, he said. They're concerned and they're worried. So Jesus comforts the disciples and says, let not your heart be weary. It's all going to work out just the way the Father has planned. It's okay. You'll be okay. I am going away for your sake. And he tells them they know the way to where he's going. And Thomas is confused. So in addition to Thomas the doubter, we could call him Thomas the confused one. He says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How would we know the way? So Jesus points out again he's going to the Father. So, oh, okay, well then just show us the Father and that's all we need. And Jesus says, I am the Father. I've been with you all along. And then he puts it another way. He starts talking about the Father again being in him and he being in the Father. And then in verse 16, an amazing revelation occurs. He says there's a third person who's going to show up. Another manifestation of God. This expression of God, the Holy Spirit, he will abide And within us, he will be able to. The work Jesus is getting ready to do will enable the Holy Spirit to dwell within unholy man. The Father will be reunited with his creation, the creation of his Son. And so in John 15, Jesus now, to clear things up even further, starts talking about himself as a vine and that we're branches. See, the vine is both a support system and the source of water and nutrients For the branches. The vine itself doesn't produce fruit directly, but rather the vine supplies what is needed to the branches to produce fruit. This didn't ever really occur to me till yesterday. The vine doesn't produce fruit directly, the branches produce the fruit. Remember back in John 14, he said, Whatever I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they'll do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. He didn't say, once I go to the Father, I will do even greater works. That's not what he said. He said, we will do greater works because he goes to the Father. There are a number of metaphors used in the Bible to explain our relationship with God. He's called the king. We're called his subjects. He's the parent. We're the children. He's the master. We're the servants. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. He's the creator. We're the created. He's the savior. We're the lost. He's the redeemer. We're the redeemed. 
He's a cornerstone. We are other stones. He's a vine. We are branches. So in terms of context, right in the middle of this critical drama, Jesus starts talking about himself as a vine. He often used farming analogies simply because everyone would understand them. I can imagine there might be some computer software analogies and hard drive stuff, but that wouldn't have worked back then. They wouldn't know what they're talking about. But I believe he could have done that. He was God. He is God. He talks about branches who are abiding. So as I researched this passage, I was impressed and disappointed with the number of preachers and theologians who use this passage to put pressure on people. So let's first address the idea of the branches who are not abiding. That's where a lot of preachers want to just stay there. Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, what happens? He's thrown away as a branch, dried up, and they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. Oh, how easy it is, isn't it, to use that as a way of threatening people to start producing fruit. Get busy. Prove yourself. You better get scared. You better get worried. You and I know you both aren't doing enough. You need to clean up your act. It's just a matter of time till you're thrown out because you're not going to hack it. I know people who've become burned out trying not to get burned up. Some of us are in this room. Amen? The problem with this approach is we run into a theology that says we can lose our salvation, and the Scripture's really clear on that. We're sealed in Christ. There are at least three, maybe more possibilities of how we can interpret that verse. First, it's clear in other passages that there is going to be a judgment. There is going to be some kind of a separation. And this verse could be referring to those who refuse to accept Jesus as a son of God. A second interpretation, could, it could also refer to those who have pretended to be in Christ. Perhaps for social acceptance, for example. And then they leave him when things get tough. Outwardly, it looks like they're abiding, but inwardly, they really aren't. We could go to the, the story about the fig tree. Remember in Mark 11, Jesus was going along the way and he gets hungry. And in the distance, he sees a fig tree in leaf. And he went to find out if it had any fruit. The key here is in leaf. It was normal for leaves to appear when the fruit is beginning to appear. And this tree was giving an external show that there was something of value here. But when he looked... There was no fruit. Some Christians, they give a good show, but there's no fruit. God's not impressed with the external show. Third, some theologians think that Jesus was referring to Judas, whom he had just dismissed. What if when Jesus dismissed Judas, Judas would have said, I'd rather stay here and abide with you, Lord. But he didn't. That's not what happened. But for a while... Judas was abiding with Jesus, wasn't he? So the disciples might be wondering later on, what about Jesus? He was abiding with you, but he stopped abiding with me, and he went his own way. Judas was a political person. He was looking for a new ruler. He was trying to force the hand of Jesus to make him make his move. He may have actually thought Jesus was the right guy for this job of making Israel great again setting us free from our political oppressors. Judas was impatient. Judas lacked forbearance. Judas was a fig tree in leaf. We've all heard the phrase, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. 
You've heard that. We probably have said it, and that's fine. That's okay. In Colossians and in John, we read that all things were created by him and through him, and in him all things are held together. So it follows that Jesus has a personal relationship with every single human being that ever lived, is living, and will ever live. The problem is not all human beings will have a personal relationship with him, even though he desires it. This morning in Sunday school, my brother over here, Will Smith, asked us a good question. There was all these things we're supposed to do, and he says, if we're in the flesh, how can we, how can we do all that? And the answer was, we can't, because Christianity is impossible. You can't do this thing. And it's really a snare for those who are the doers, the responsibility people, for those who like to take on a challenge, for those who think they can figure things out. It's a snare. It's a snare for those who are bent towards kindness, who love others, especially when they find out they also have to love the unlovely. They also have to love their enemies. It's a snare for those who like to do things on their own. Christianity is impossible unless you abide. Although the Feast of Tabernacles has come to mean a time of dwelling with God and the Jews will set up tents or living spaces separate from their regular living quarters, it actually stems from a practice of related to farming. The time of harvest was a time of lots of work and lots of fun. To save time and enhance productivity, the Jews would set up temporary living quarters right there in the, in the vineyards. No need to travel back and forth every morning, and since they were all there, near the harvest, the blessings of God, they could take advantage of their closeness and celebrate together in the evening, singing and dancing. They stayed. They abided. They tabernacled in the fields where God was blessing them. They didn't stay with the fields. They stayed in the fields. This is a great mystery. God indwelling sinful man. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's be clear as we're talking about things of the Spirit. There's a difference between fruits and gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are mentioned in three places in 1 Colossians and Ephesians and Romans. And they include things like wisdom and knowledge and faith, healing, tongues, interpretation, administration, evangelism, and so on. The gifts of the Spirit are actually abilities given to us by God that we can exercise in any situation. Therefore, the express purpose of building up the body of Christ. Believers do not receive all the gifts, just the gifts that they need for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. You might have one gift, you might have a couple gifts. You can choose to use these gifts or not. But the fruits of the Spirit, they are not abilities that we can choose to use or not. Rather, the fruits are visible attributes that come forth naturally in a truly connected life. And unlike the gifts, these fruits are not individual, nor are they limited. Every Christian has all nine of these fruits that we'll read about in Galatians. Or we, we could say there's just really one fruit expressed in nine ways. We don't pick and choose, and we don't even make them grow. We can't make them grow. We can allow them, but we can't make them because they're already there within us. They naturally come forth. We will look at this growth in a moment. In John 15, 4 through 5, as we just read, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides 
in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, stay in me because I'm going to stay in you. This is a relationship. It's a two-way deal. I'm not going to leave you. Something I remember often when I feel alone. God, why have you left me? And he says, I've never left you. We, if we study how fruits grow and how things work in a vineyard, and for this purpose we'll use grapes, <laughs> there are some interesting insights that go on. First, unless someone comes along and trains the vine, which means they'll have to do some cutting of it, some damage to it, unless someone comes along and trains that vine, it'll grow wild along the ground and the grapes won't grow easily if they grow at all. So the one who establishes a vineyard, a yard of vines, first selects the finest vines and plants them at a distance where they will have room to grow without interfering with one another but also close enough that they could reach out and grab hold of each other. The vine dresser also builds a support system, a lattice work with guy wires onto which the vines can attach themselves with something called a tendril. You see a tendril there. Anything a tendril touches, it'll start to curl around it. It'll hang on to anything that it touches. It'll even latch on to the other vines if it gets near them. Any branch that, falls, that fails to find a guy wire or another vine to grow onto, it will start to droop towards the ground. And this creates two problems. First, the water and nutrients the critical that come through the vine into the branch naturally want to flow upward, upward towards the sun, towards God. If a branch starts to droop towards the ground, that water is going to want to move upwards back into the vine. And as a result, it will dry out. Secondly, any vine that begins hanging down will be cut off from the sun by the other vines above it, casting a shadow. Therefore, any vine that doesn't catch hold of a wire or another vine will catch the attention of the vine dresser, if there's a good vine dresser. Now, this is important. A good vine dresser will notice this problem quickly because he cares for the vine and for the branches. A good vine dresser will not initially cut this vine off, but rather he will lift it up and he will attach it to a wire so that it can continue to bear fruit. He will lift it up, tie it to a wire, and the nutrients will begin to flow and grow a tendril maybe by itself eventually. So by now, hopefully you're ahead of me in understanding this metaphor. We know that the vine is Jesus, the vine dresser is the Father. The wine and the nutrients are the Holy Spirit. The other branches are other believers. The guy wires, the guy wires are the word of God. So do you want to know how to abide? Because I was thinking about Scott the whole time. And I saw this is a book I'm going to get for myself. (laughs) Just got a little laugh. Step one, attitude. Choose your identity. When Jesus calls us branches, he's not telling us what to do. He's telling us who we are. He's giving us an identity. I'm a branch. I can't grow fruit on my own. I'm a conduit. We're conduits through which the fruit will grow as long as we remain 
connected to the vine as long as we remain in Jesus. I am in Jesus now. Jesus is in me now. Let's all say it together. I am in Jesus now. Jesus is in me now. Not going to be, not when I'm being good. He's already in us. Step two, be open. Keep your heart open. The Holy Spirit will move in you with new, but perhaps unfamiliar desires. Sometimes they're strong, but most times these new desires are subtle so as not to overwhelm us. Sometimes you'll feel some unexpected joy about some little thing. That may feel weird, but just let it flow. Sometimes you'll sense a subtle nudge to not do something you would normally do. Let that flow into you. Other times you'll notice an ever so slight desire to be kind to a stranger or gentle with someone who you'd just like to hit. It might seem strange or weird, but go with it. Don't quench it. Don't push back. Pull it through. Pushing makes you weak. Pulling makes you strong. There may be times when you're in a hurry and getting frustrated and some small voice suggests relaxing and calming down. Take a deep breath. Let that permeate you. Step three, inspect your life. Inspect and expect to be pruned. Look at the damaged places in your life. The father, the good vine dresser, will show you these places he wants to either remove, cut out from your life, or to heal by lifting you higher. Either way, it will be a new and initially uncomfortable experience. But embrace the changes coming into your life. Live through it. Trust the process. As one of the younger branches in our congregation put it recently, and his initials are Christiani, he said to us, I've learned I don't need to understand before I experience. I've learned to trust the process. Understanding will come later. Amen? Step four, develop an addiction. Develop an addiction to reading God's Word. I'm not even talking about studying God's Word, which I'd recommend. I'm just saying, read God's Word. Listen to it every day, even if you don't understand it. Andrea and I were talking about this this morning, reading stuff that you don't understand, but the more you read it, eventually you start to understand it. The Holy Spirit will teach you what it's saying. If you feel like you're starting to dry up, read Scripture. And step five, extend yourself to others. Love on people. I shared this simple idea a while back, and I'll share it again. Just love on people. Some of you have shared with me how your life has changed just by focusing on this simple approach. I myself am a simpleton. I'm always looking for this simple approach. It's a polite way of saying I'm lazy. Okay. Talk to people you don't know. As I coach my clients, I require them to get to know two people between each session and just find out two things. What are they trying to do and what's an obstacle that they have? Who knows, you might be able to help them along. One of my professors in college was telling me that whenever he's on a flight, he always introduces himself to the person next to him. And he says, hi, I'm Hollis Green. I'm wondering, did God put us together so I can help you or so you can help me? God built Oxford Graduate School through Dr. Green using that simple approach. I'm not talking about an open display of affection. 
I'm talking about listening to and caring for others, considering their interests as more important than your own. So there were five steps, but I'll make it easy for you. The right attitude of your identity, be open, inspect your life, develop an addiction to God's word, and extend yourself. And you're going to get some benefits out of this, and others are going to get a benefit out of this as well. What's going to happen is some stuff's going to start appearing on you, you bunch of branches, you. The fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against, against such thing, there's no law. It's okay. You're allowed to have this stuff in your life. You're not going to get in trouble for it. So, since this is a series about maturity, what will we look like as we continue to abide in Jesus and to hang on to his word and to hang on to each other? Well, as we stay focused on, to think about, relate to, depend on Jesus as often as possible, we'll see an increase within us which will translate externally. We might initially notice it about ourselves, but over time, we might not notice it anymore. It's kind of like when we gain weight. We initially notice it, but after a while, it becomes kind of natural, unfortunately. But it'll start to feel normal to us. The first Fruit is love. As we grow in love, we will tend to be more thankful for what we have and less envious of others. We will also tend not to boast. We'll become less rude and more polite and more forgiving. I think of people like Rick Sardella and Christine Cruz. We'll start to see joy coming out of us. As we abide in Jesus, we tend to become more joyful and less depressed, sad, and gloomy. Little things will begin to delight us. We won't need the big things in life to get us happy. Little tiny things will somehow start delighting us. We'll start to notice beauty where others are missing it. And you might even become like, oh, Melanie or Julie Meekins. People have this natural joy in their lives. As we abide in Jesus, we become less anxious, less angry. Even when the storms of life hit, we find peace in Jesus. And with each storm, there's more peace. Are you struggling with finding peace? Hang on to the vine. I think about people like Gary Coombs and Elizabeth Broadnax finding this peace in their lives. As we live in Jesus, we find a new strength to endure difficult people. Perhaps you've noticed you've become less irritated with certain people. I mean, you're still irritated. You're just not as irritated as you used to be with certain people. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you've become less frustrated with the person driving slow in the passing lane. I'm still working on that. (laughs) Long-suffering patience. I think about Walt Interkofer and Steve Park. As we dwell in Jesus, we'll become... Kind, even in situations where it would be more natural to be mean. We'll start to return kindness when others are being rude. I think of Chuck and Barb Markham. I think of Fred Rogers when I think of this fruit as well. When I was a very young branch, I used to laugh at him. Now I pray to be just like him. I'm allowing that fruit to grow in me. 
goodness is another fruit. As we depend on Jesus for our spiritual nutrition, when we lean on him to guide how we think, we will find we become more aware of what's right and wrong, and we will desire to do what is right. We will begin to despise evil. We'll become opposed to the darkness and to dark things. We will desire to be more in the light. And I think of people like Joe Nebia, Amanda Perez. Our faith will grow as we immerse ourselves in the Lord and consider ourselves dead to our own devices. We will begin to naturally take God at his word. We begin to check ourselves, stopping for a moment to think about who are we really depending on for this very next task, whatever it is. It means we will begin to take on even bigger challenges in building the kingdom of God because we are learning how dependable and trustworthy he really is. We will rest on him more often, like I see in Scott Schuller's life and in Don Cruz. What will also start to come out and continue to grow as we allow the holy living water of the Lord to penetrate us through and through, we start feeling naturally humble. He will start accomplishing so much through us that we'll start to become embarrassed at the praise and admiration others will show us and we'll defer it to the Lord. Some of us might even start to do things more behind the scenes in the Lord just out of concern that we might get the credit, like Beth Rinker does. In addition, we deal with others and attempt to help them through correction. When we do so, we'll tend to approach them with humility, like Carolyn does and my brother Brian. As we continue to allow the Lord to grow through us, to draw upon him for our strength, we'll begin to find that the very things that used to hold us back or beat us down, we will begin to overcome those things. The irony of this particular fruit is that in order to gain self-control, you must give up the whole idea that you're in control. You're just a branch. I think of Will Smith, who is someone who is overcoming things in his life and beginning to despise the dark things that used to attract him. And that's what he told me. And, we, and, and I'm hoping that he can feel all the tendrils in this congregation reaching out to hold him up as we hold each other up. He's not the only one here who needs help. I need it more than he does. So that's why Jesus said, those who want to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Abiding is a process. Keep abiding. In Jude... The 20 and 21st verse, don't ask me which chapter because I think there's only one. (laughs) He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God and keep on keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously, expectantly for the mercy of our Lord, Jesus Christ, to eternal life. Second Peter 1, 4 through 8, talks us about, tells us about a benefit. He says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly 
kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes forward, let's close in prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you every hour. We need you. You have us right where you want us. In a place of dependence on you, we are branches who are rooted in the vine. Fill us with your living water. Cleanse us with your word. Bless us through the fellowship of other believers. Lift us up to the light of the sun. Bear fruit through us. We are drawing upon you as the source of our life, our joy, our ability to persevere, our desire to be kind, our potential to be good, our knowledge to be faithful, our reminder to be humble, our reason to be gentle. You are our strength to have self-control, and you are our love to love. We choose to stay with you and in you. We open the channels of our lives to receive the nourishment you provide so that the fruit only you produce will blossom. We yield to you. We cling to you. We draw from you. We are cleansed by your word. We are filled with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.